Hello again. I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud. Thanks for joining me this evening. You may be more familiar with his dramas, The Cherry Orchard, Three Sisters, Uncle Vanya, but the Russian physician-turned-author Anton Chekhov was also the master of the short story. He continues to delight, move, and puzzle. His stories are sometimes satirical, but never ideological. He never thrusts a simple message on us, but presents unforgettable characters viewed with nuance and compassion. Of his short stories, Raymond Carver, who considered Chekhov the greatest short story writer who ever lived, commented, They are as wonderful and necessary now as when they first appeared. They present in an extraordinarily precise manner an unparalleled account of human activity in his time, and so they are valid for all time. Anyone who reads literature, anyone who believes, as one must, in the transcendent power of art, sooner or later has to read Chekhov, and just now might be a better time than any. Two stories tonight, The Bet and A Work of Art. The Bet by Anton Chekhov It was a dark autumn night. The old banker was walking up and down his study, and remembering how, fifteen years before, he had given a party one autumn evening. There had been many clever men there, and there had been interesting conversations. Among other things, they had talked of capital punishment. The majority of the guests, among whom were many journalists and intellectual men, disapproved of the death penalty. They considered that form of punishment out of date, immoral, and unsuitable for Christian states. In the opinion of some of them, the death penalty ought to be replaced everywhere by imprisonment for life. "'I don't agree with you,' said their host, the banker. "'I've not tried either the death penalty or imprisonment for life, but if one may judge a priori, the death penalty is more moral and humane than imprisonment for life.' Capital punishment kills a man at once, but lifelong imprisonment kills him slowly. Which executioner is the more humane, he who kills you in a few minutes, or he who drags the life out of you in the course of many years? Both are equally immoral, observed one of the guests, for they both have the same object, to take away life. The state is not God. It has not the right to take away what it cannot restore when it wants to. Among the guests was a young lawyer, a young man of five and twenty. When he was asked his opinion, he said, The death sentence and the life sentence are equally immoral, but if I had to choose between the death penalty and imprisonment for life, I would certainly choose the second. To live anyhow is better than not at all. A lively discussion arose. The banker, who was younger and more nervous in those days, was suddenly carried away by excitement. He struck the table with his fist and shouted at the young man, "'It's not true. I'll bet you two millions you wouldn't stay in solitary confinement for five years.' "'If you mean that in earnest,' said the young man, "'I'll take the bet. But I would stay not five, but fifteen years.' Fifteen? "'Done!' cried the banker. "'Gentlemen, I stake two millions.' "'Agreed. You stake your millions, and I stake my freedom,' said the young man. 
and this wild, senseless bet was carried out. The banker, spoiled and frivolous, with millions beyond his reckoning, was delighted at the bet. At supper he made fun of the young man, and said, "'Think of it, young man, while there is still time. To me two millions are a trifle. But you are losing three or four of the best years of your life. I say three or four, because you won't stay longer. Don't forget either, you unhappy man, that voluntary confinement is a great deal harder to bear than compulsory.' The thought that you have the right to step out in liberty at any moment will poison your whole existence in prison. I am sorry for you. And now the banker, walking to and fro, remembered all this and asked himself, what was the object of that bet? What is the good of that man's losing fifteen years of his life and my throwing away two millions? Can it prove that the death penalty is better or worse than imprisonment for life? No, no. It was all nonsensical and meaningless. On my part, it was the caprice of a pampered man, and on his part, simple greed for money. Then he remembered what followed that evening. It was decided that the young man should spend the years of his captivity under the strictest supervision in one of the lodges in the banker's garden. It was agreed that for fifteen years he should not be free to cross the threshold of the lodge, to see human beings, to hear the human voice, or to receive letters and newspapers. He was allowed to have a musical instrument and books, and was allowed to write letters, to drink wine, and to smoke. By the terms of the agreement, the only relations he could have with the outer world were by a little window made purposely for that object. He might have anything he wanted—books, music, wine, and so on—in any quantity he desired by writing an order, but could only receive them through the window. The agreement provided for every detail and every trifle that would make his prison strictly solitary, and bound the young man to stay there exactly fifteen years, beginning from twelve o'clock of November 14, 1870, and ending at twelve o'clock of November 14, 1885. The slightest attempt on his part to break the conditions, if only two minutes before the end, released the banker from the obligation to pay him two millions. The first year of his confinement, as far as one could judge from his brief notes, the prisoner suffered severely from loneliness and depression. The sounds of the piano could be heard continually, day and night, from his lodge. He refused wine and tobacco. Wine, he wrote, excites the desires, and desires are the worst foes of the prisoner. And besides, nothing could be more dreary than drinking good wine and seeing no one. And tobacco spoilt the air of his room. In the first year the books he sent for were principally of a light character, novels with a complicated love-plot, sensational and fantastic stories, and so on. In the second year the piano was silent in the lodge, and the prisoner asked only for the classics. In the fifth year music was audible again, and the prisoner asked for wine. Those who watched him through the window said that all that year he spent doing nothing but eating and drinking and lying on his bed, frequently yawning and angrily talking to himself. He did not read books. Sometimes at night he would sit down to write. 
he would spend hours writing, and in the morning tear up all that he had written. More than once he could be heard crying. In the second half of the sixth year, the prisoner began zealously studying languages, philosophy, and history. He threw himself eagerly into these studies, so much so that the banker had enough to do to get him the books he ordered. In the course of four years, some six hundred volumes were procured at his request. It was during this period that the banker received the following letter from his prisoner. My dear jailer, I write you these lines in six languages. Show them to people who know the languages. Let them read them. If they find not one mistake, I implore you to fire a shot in the garden. That shot will show me that my efforts have not been thrown away. The geniuses of all ages and of all lands speak different languages, but the same flame burns in them all. Oh, if you only knew what unearthly happiness my soul feels now from being able to understand them. The prisoner's desire was fulfilled. The banker ordered two shots to be fired in the garden. Then, after the tenth year, the prisoner sat immovably at the table and read nothing but the gospel. It seemed strange to the banker that a man who, in four years, had mastered six hundred learned volumes should waste nearly a year over one thin book easy of comprehension. Theology and histories of religion followed the Gospels. In the last two years of his confinement, the prisoner read an immense quantity of books, quite indiscriminately. At one time he was busy with the natural sciences, then he would ask for Byron or Shakespeare. There were notes in which he demanded at the same time books on chemistry and a manual of medicine and a novel and some treatise on philosophy or theology. His reading suggested a man swimming in the sea among the wreckage of his ship and trying to save his life by greedily clutching first at one spar and then at another. The old banker remembered this and thought, "'Tomorrow, at twelve o'clock, he will regain his freedom.' By our agreement, I ought to pay him two millions. If I do pay him, it is all over with me. I shall be utterly ruined. Fifteen years before, his millions had been beyond his reckoning. Now he was afraid to ask himself which were greater, his debts or his assets. Desperate gambling on the stock exchange, wild speculation, and the excitability which he could not get over even in advancing years had by degrees led to the decline of his fortune, and the proud, fearless, self-confident millionaire had become a banker of middling rank, trembling at every rise and fall in his investments. "'Cursed bet!' muttered the old man, clutching his head in despair. "'Why didn't the man die?' He is only forty now. He will take my last penny from me. He will marry, will enjoy life, will gamble on the exchange, while I shall look at him with envy like a beggar, and hear from him every day the same sentence, I am indebted to you for the happiness of my life. Let me help you. No, it is too much. The one means of being saved from bankruptcy and disgrace is the death of that man." It struck three o'clock. The banker listened. Everyone was asleep in the house, and nothing could be heard outside but the rustling of the chilled trees. 
Trying to make no noise, he took from a fireproof safe the key of the door which had not been opened for fifteen years, put on his overcoat, and went out of the house. It was dark and cold in the garden. Rain was falling. A damp, cutting wind was racing about the garden, howling and giving the trees no rest. The banker strained his eyes, but could see neither the earth, nor the white statues, nor the lodge, nor the trees. Going to the spot where the lodge stood, he twice called the watchman. No answer followed. Evidently, the watchman had sought shelter from the weather, and was now asleep somewhere, either in the kitchen or in the greenhouse. "'If I had the pluck to carry out my intention,' thought the old man, "'suspicion would fall first upon the watchman.' He felt in the darkness for the steps and the door, and went into the entry of the lodge. Then he groped his way into a little passage and lighted a match. There was not a soul there. There was a bedstead with no bedding on it, and in the corner there was a dark cast-iron stove. The seals on the door leading to the prisoners' rooms were intact. When the match went out, the old man, trembling with emotion, peeped through the little window. A candle was burning dimly in the prisoners' room. He was sitting at the table. Nothing could be seen but his back, the hair on his head, and his hands. Open books were lying on the table, on the two easy chairs, and on the carpet near the table. Five minutes passed, and the prisoner did not once stir. Fifteen years' imprisonment had taught him to sit still. The banker tapped at the window with his finger, and the prisoner made no move whatever in response. Then the banker cautiously broke the seals off the door and put the key in the keyhole. The rusty lock gave a grating sound, and the door creaked. The banker expected to hear at once footsteps and a cry of astonishment. But three minutes passed, and it was as quiet as ever in the room. He made up his mind to go in. At the table, a man unlike ordinary people was sitting motionless. He was a skeleton, with the skin drawn tight over his bones, with long curls like a woman's, and a shaggy beard. His face was yellow, with an earthy tint in it. His cheeks were hollow, his back long and narrow, and the hand on which his shaggy head was propped was so thin and delicate that it was dreadful to look at it. His hair was already streaked with silver, and seeing his emaciated, aged-looking face, no one would have believed that he was only forty. He was asleep. In front of his bowed head there lay on the table a sheet of paper on which there was something written in fine handwriting. Poor creature, thought the banker, he is asleep, and most likely dreaming of the millions. And I have only to take this half-dead man, throw him on the bed, stifle him a little with the pillow, and the most conscientious expert would find no sign of a violent death. But let us first read what he has written here. The banker took the page from the table and read as follows. Tomorrow at twelve o'clock I regain my freedom and the right to associate with other men. 
But before I leave this room and see the sunshine, I think it necessary to say a few words to you. With a clear conscience I tell you, as before God who beholds me, that I despise freedom and life and health and all that in your books is called the good things of the world. For fifteen years I have been intently studying earthly life. It is true I have not seen the earth nor men, but in your books I have drunk fragrant wine, I have sung songs, I have hunted stags and wild boars in the forests, have loved women, beauties as ethereal as clouds, created by the magic of your poets and geniuses, have visited me at night, and have whispered in my ears wonderful tales that have set my brain in a whirl. In your books I have climbed to the peaks of Elbours and Mont Blanc, and from there I have seen the sun rise, and have watched it at evening flood the sky, the ocean, and the mountain tops with gold and crimson. I have watched from there the lightning flashing over my head and cleaving the storm clouds. I have seen green forests, fields, rivers, lakes, towns. I have heard the singing of the sirens and the strains of the shepherd's pipes. I have touched the wings of comely devils who flew down to converse with me of God. In your books I have flung myself into the bottomless pit, performed miracles, slain, burned towns, preached new religions, conquered whole kingdoms. Your books have given me wisdom. All that the unresting thought of man has created in the ages is compressed into a small compass in my brain. I know that I am wiser than all of you and I despise your books, I despise wisdom and the blessings of this world. It is all worthless, fleeting, illusory, and deceptive, like a mirage. You may be proud, wise, and fine, but death will wipe you off the face of the earth as though you were no more than mice burrowing under the floor, and your posterity, your history, your immortal geniuses will burn or freeze together with the earthly globe. You have lost your reason and taken the wrong path. You have taken lies for truth and hideousness for beauty. You would marvel if, owing to strange events of some sorts, frogs and lizards suddenly grew on apple and orange trees instead of fruit, or if roses began to smell like a sweating horse. So I marvel at you who exchange heaven for earth. I don't want to understand you. To prove to you in action how I despise all that you live by, I renounce the two millions of which I once dreamed as of paradise and which now I despise. To deprive myself of the right to the money, I shall go out from here five hours before the time fixed, and so break the compact. When the banker had read this, he laid the page on the table kissed the strange man on the head, and went out of the lodge, weeping. At no other time, even when he had lost heavily on the stock exchange, had he felt so great a contempt for himself. When he got home, he lay on his bed, but his tears and emotions kept him for hours from sleeping. Next morning the watchman ran in with pale faces and told him they had seen the man who lived in the lodge climb out of the window into the garden, go to the gate, and disappear. 
The banker went at once with the servants to the lodge and made sure of the flight of his prisoner. To avoid arousing unnecessary talk, he took from the table the writing in which the millions were renounced, and when he got home, locked it up in the fireproof safe. A WORK OF ART Holding under his arm an object wrapped in a newspaper, Sasha Smirnov, the only son of his mother, walked nervously into the office of Dr. Koshelkov. "'Well, my dear boy,' exclaimed the doctor warmly, "'how do you feel today? What's the good news?' Sasha began to blink with his eyes, put his hand over his heart, and stammered nervously, "'My mother sends her regards and begs to thank you. I am my mother's only son, and you have saved my life, and we both hardly know how to thank you.' "'Come, come, my young friend, let us not speak of it,' interrupted the doctor, literally melting with pleasure. "'I have only done what anybody else in my place would have done. I am the only son of my mother. We are poor people, and consequently we are not in a position to pay for your trouble. And it makes it very embarrassing for us, doctor, although both of us, mother and I, who am the only son of my mother, beg you to accept from us a token of our gratitude, this object which—' is an object of rare worth, a wonderful masterpiece in antique bronze. The doctor made a grimace. Why, my dear friend, he said, it is entirely unnecessary. I don't need this in the least. Oh, no, no, stammered Sasha. I beg you, please accept it. He began to unwrap the bundle, continuing his entreaties in the meantime. "'If you do not accept it, you will offend both my mother and myself. This is a very rare work of art, an antique bronze. It is a relic left by my dead father. We have been prizing it as a very dear remembrance. My father used to buy up bronze antiquities, selling them to lovers of old statuary, and now we continue in the same business, my mother and myself.' Sasha undid the package and enthusiastically placed it on the table. It was a low candelabrum of antique bronze, a work of real art representing a group. On a pedestal stood two figures of women clad in the costume of Mother Eve, and in poses that I have neither the audacity nor the temperament to describe. These figures were smiling coquettishly, and in general gave one the impression that were it not for the fact that they were obliged to support the candlestick, they would lean down from their pedestal and exhibit a performance which, my dear reader, I am even ashamed to think of it. When the doctor espied the present, he slowly scratched his head, cleared his throat, and blew his nose. "'Yes, indeed, um, a very pretty piece of work,' he mumbled. "'But how shall I say, uh, not quite, I mean, rather unconventional. Not a bit literary, is it? You know, the devil knows. Why? Beelzebub himself could not have conceived anything more ugly. Should I place such a phantasmagoria upon my table, I would pollute my entire house. Why, doctor, what a strange conception you have of art! cried Sasha in offended tones. This is a real masterpiece. Just look at it. Such is its harmonious beauty that just to contemplate it fills the soul with ecstasy and makes the throat choke down a sob. When you see such loveliness, you forget all earthly things. 
Just look at it. What life, what motion, what expression. I understand all this, my dear boy, interrupted the doctor. But I am a married man. Little children run in and out of this room, and ladies come here continually. Of course, said Sasha. If you look at it through the eyes of the rabble, you see this noble masterpiece in an entirely different light. But you certainly are above all that, doctor, and especially when your refusal to accept this gift will deeply offend both my mother and myself, who am the only son of my mother. You have saved my life, and in return we give you our dearest possession, and my only regret is that we are unable to give you the mate to this candelabrum. "'Thanks, my friend, many thanks. Remember me to your mother, and—but for God's sake, you can see for yourself, can't you? Little children run in and out of this room, and ladies come here continually. However, leave it here. There is no arguing with you.' "'Don't say another word!' exclaimed Sasha joyously. "'Put the candelabrum right here, next to the vase. By Jove, but it's a pity that I haven't got the mate to give you. But it can't be helped. Well, good-bye, doctor.' After the departure of Sasha, the doctor looked for a long time at the candelabrum and scratched his head. "'This is beautiful, all right,' he thought. "'It would be a pity to throw it away, and yet I dare not keep it. Hmm. Now who in the world is there to whom I can present or donate it?' After long deliberation he hit upon a good friend of his, the lawyer Ukov, to whom he was indebted for legal services. <laughs> "'Fine!' chuckled the doctor. "'Being a close friend of his, I cannot very well offer him money, and so I will give him this piece of indecency instead. And he's just the man for it, single and somewhat of a gay bird, too. No sooner thought than done.' Dressing himself, the doctor took the candelabrum and went to the home of Ukov. "'Good morning, old chap!' he said. I have come here to thank you for your trouble. You will not take money, and I will therefore repay you by presenting you with this exquisite masterpiece. Now say for yourself, isn't it a dream? As soon as the lawyer caught sight of it, he was exhilarated with its beauty. What a wonderful work of art! He laughed uproariously. Ye gods, what conceptions artists will get in their heads! What alluring charm! Where did you get this little dandy? But now his exhilaration had oozed away, and he became frightened. Looking stealthily toward the door, he said, But I can't accept it, old chap. You must take it right back. Why? asked the doctor in alarm. Because, because my mother often visits me, my clients come here, and besides, I would be disgraced even in the eyes of my servants. "'Don't say another word!' cried the doctor, gesticulating wildly. "'You simply have got to accept it. It would be rank ingratitude for you to refuse it. Such a masterpiece! What motion! What expression! You will greatly offend me if you don't take it. If only this were daubed over or covered with fig leaves!' But the doctor refused to listen to him. Gesticulating even more wildly, he ran out of Ukov's house in the thought that he was rid of the present. When the doctor was gone, the lawyer carefully examined the candelabrum, and then, just as the doctor had done, he began to wonder what in the world he could do with it. 
A very beautiful object, he thought. It is a pity to throw it away, and yet it is disgraceful to keep it. I had best present it to someone. I've got it. This very evening I'm going to give it to the comedian Shoshkin. The rascal loves such things, and besides, this is his benefit night. No sooner thought than done. That afternoon the well-packed candelabrum was brought to the comedian Shoshkin. That whole evening the dressing-room of the comedian Shoshkin was besieged by men who hastened to inspect the present, and during all the time the room re-echoed with hilarious laughter which most closely resembled the neighing of horses. If any of the actresses approached the door and said, "'May I enter?' the hoarse voice of Shoshkin was immediately heard to say, "'Oh, no, no, my darling, you mustn't. I am not dressed.' After the performance the comedian shrugged his shoulders, gesticulated with his hands, and said, "'Now what in the world am I to do with this? I live in a private apartment. I am often visited by actresses, and this isn't a photograph that one could conceal in a drawer.' "'Why don't you sell it?' suggested the wig-maker. There is a certain old woman who buys up antique bronzes. Her name is Smirnova. You had better take a run over there. They'll show you the place all right. Everybody knows her. The comedian followed his advice. Two days later, Koshelkov, his head supported on his hand, was sitting in his office concocting pills. Suddenly the door was opened, and into the office rushed Sasha, he was smiling radiantly, and his breast heaved with joy. In his hands he held something wrapped in a newspaper. "'Doctor!' he cried breathlessly. "'Imagine my joy! As luck would have it, I've just succeeded in getting the mate to your candelabrum. Mother is so happy. I am the only son of my mother. You have saved my life.' And Sasha quivering with thankfulness and rapture, placed a candelabrum before the doctor. The latter opened his mouth as if to say something, but uttered not a word. His power of speech was gone. You've been listening to The Bet and a Work of Art by Anton Chekhov. I'm Richard Figge, and this has been for Reading Out Loud. If you'd like a free subscription to this series, drop me a line at rfigge, that's R-F as in Frank, I-G-G-E, at worcester.edu. I'll be happy to send you programs by email. That's it for tonight. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy, all the best. (music) 